If you were asked to explain to someone what are culinary techniques, well, chances are you might think of different ways to mince, chop or slice meat, poultry and fish. And I'm sure many of you even know fancy styles of cutting vegetables like julienne, batonette, alumette and so on. And when it comes to ways of cooking, I think we are all familiar with boiling, frying, baking, steaming and charring, among a few other staple methods. Over thousands of years, we humans have developed, improved and passed on to the next generations all the food knowledge that we have accumulated from farming to storing, processing and managing. In essence, all of the cooking techniques and methods that we have developed respond to the need to preserve and maximize resources, make food easier and in some cases safer to eat, and of course, to enhance the flavor and texture of our foods and drinks. It all seems very straightforward, but you and I know that we humans are very complex creatures. And one thing that really sets us apart from other species is that we are able to create meanings around the things we do. And indeed, when it comes to food, nourishing our bodies can become a secondary goal, as we often use food as a way to socialize, to show affection, to mourn, to celebrate, to remember, to offer our gratitude, and even certain foods are meant to heal or restore our souls. You see, Mexican traditional food has inherited many legacies. Not only the Spanish brought their gastronomy and also their very particular way to understand food. And we have also come in contact with migrant diasporas and people that were brought here without a choice And of course, we are the descendants of many ancient indigenous cultures for whom life was structured around two central ideas. The broad notion that they were the children of the earth and the understanding that there was a universal balance which they had to maintain in a perpetual dynamic of taking and restoring. And food was indeed the most sacred connection with the cosmos. Understandably, thanks to these and many other factors, our food traditions have only become more complex and varied. So today I want to go back to some of the basics of indigenous food, past and present, and the techniques and methods to transform ingredients and prepare special foods that create unique textures, flavors, and aromas for many and very surprising purposes. And in doing so, I will try to uncover and explore some key elements of an extraordinarily rich food language. You are listening to episode 73 of Pase Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs 
who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, subscribe to my newsletter, and connect with me on social media, check the show's description on your podcast app. This is Denise from Los Angeles. I'm a home cook and social scientist. I'm an enthusiastic listener of Pass the Chipotle podcast because it allows me to continue my education of Mexican history and gastronomy. I greatly appreciate all the valuable stories and research offered through the podcast. Thank you, Rocio. I was having a cup of coffee the other day and enjoying the bitter flavor and earthy taste of it. And I was particularly aware of this because I was finishing a book called Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human by biologist and ecologist Rob Donnan and his wife, anthropologist Monica Sanchez, which I will definitely feature at some point on Hungry Books podcast. Well, the thing is that the book has a very interesting core idea that our palate, that is our sense of taste, was fundamental to the food choices that we have made as we have evolved from hominids to homo sapiens. And it really continued influencing our preferences dictating the types of foods that we went on to forage, hunt, catch, and even eventually domesticate and farm. And this got me thinking about the big role that smells, flavors, and cooking methods have in traditional Mexican food. And all of these aspects put together might be kind of a missing link in helping us explain why cuisines and gastronomic traditions have evolved to the point of becoming such important expressions of our tastes and our culinary identity. So on today's episode, I want to take a different approach to food, its preparation and the creation of meaning. To do that, I have chosen a few examples of dishes, traditions and contexts, some which will be familiar to most of you and some will be a bit of a revelation. So this episode has a pinch of history, a little bit of Mesoamerican studies, a splash of chemistry, a cup of gastronomy and all sprinkled with anthropology and food studies. How does that sound? <laughs> well, We have indeed a lot to cover today, and the road ahead is full of adventures, so we better get started. I hope you enjoy this episode. From the moment we are born, we only experience the world through our senses. We can't really fend for ourselves. Our little bodies only respond to sensations. So 
We cry or thrash about if we are hungry, tired, cold, hot, afraid or annoyed. And for months, we are dominated by one need stronger than any other. To eat. We grow at such rapid pace that we must replenish the nutrients we use. And these are often delivered to us in the form of breastfeeding milk. And eventually, the juice and pulp of fruits, vegetables, and much, much later, we are introduced to solid foods and more adventurous flavors. But it is ultimately down to the culture where we are born into, which is what will teach us to discern and determine what is good to eat and what is not. What is tasty, what is good for breakfast, what is good for celebrating, to feel restored, and of course, the combinations of foodstuffs that are accepted and those that are not. This means that from our very early infancy, we are conditioned to learn specific ways to understand food and its rules of engagement. That is why cultural and food studies have come to the conclusion that the construction of taste is not just built by physiological responses, but by our attitudes, reactions and behaviors associated to flavors, smells, textures and other qualities of food that have been shaped by our personal and cultural experience and surrounding. So, for instance, when I was teething, like almost every other child of my generation here in Mexico, I was offered warm corn tortillas, little taquitos, and roasted spring onions with salt and lime to gnaw and soothe my poor itching gums as my teeth were growing. But had I been Japanese, I would have probably been offered rice crackers or maybe rye nakerbrot had I been born in Sweden. I think you get my point. We learn to love what we grow up with. For practically all of the 68 different indigenous cultures of Mexico, corn and its many preparations are the foundation of the cooking techniques, technology, flavors, textures and tastes that define our gastronomic identity. But sadly, the world was deprived of all of these creations when corn became an international trade commodity during the colonial period. This is the thing. The seeds traveled, but the culture and knowledge didn't. And the same thing occurred with cacao and chiles, which constitute also some of Mexico's most famous culinary experts. And it took decades and in some cases centuries for the world to figure out how to deal with these ingredients, how to farm them, the best ways to process them, cook them and accommodating them into their traditions. I find it really fascinating that the secret to successfully prepare and make the most of corn, cacao and chiles, they often have to undergo a lengthy and carefully controlled process of preparation that often involves a complex chemical transformation, creative cooking methods and a very sophisticated sense of taste that inspired recipes that have survived the test of time. But the fact that they are so ubiquitous 
can distract us from the genius behind tortillas, a simple chocolate bar, and, of course, even a good old salsa. A long time ago, 43 years to be precise, a Belgian anthropologist by the name of Claude Lévy-Strauss came up with a revolutionary idea to understand the cultural importance of cooking methods explained in the triad of cooked, raw and rotten. Rotten seems a bit of a strong word, but what he was referring to is fermentation. He gave this model the name of culinary triangle. And in between each of these points of the triangle, there were other cooking methods that intersected. Because, you might agree, there are many ways to cook by applying different types of heat to vegetables, fruits and meats. Heat can be applied directly in the form of a naked flame. Heat can also have a wet method like boiling water. Steam, for instance, is also a way of cooking that sort of sits in the middle of wet and dry. And smoke is a most ethereal form of heat that is also very efficient to preserve certain foods. Over the course of thousands of years, we have managed to control and perfect naturally occurring processes like fermentation. Think of mm, cheese making, the art of fermenting soy sauce, making vinegar, brewing ale and producing wine. Well, how about we take a look at corn, cacao and chiles with the culinary triangle. And I want to focus first on culinary techniques and later on, on the second part of the episode, the creation of cultural meanings around these foods. Corn is traditionally farmed seasonally in Mexico. Once the first ears of corn are ripe, they are picked to be consumed fresh in many sweet and savory dishes like soups, side or main dishes and drinks. But the rest of the corn that will be allowed to continue growing is left on the plant way past its ripening process. And since corn is not a perennial plant, meaning it will die after its reproductive cycle is completed, the ripened ears of corn slowly will dry and change in color. They will become increasingly harder and absorb the plant's nutrients to the very last drop. At this point, the ears of corn are no longer called elote in Spanish, but mazorca. After mazorcas are picked and the husks are removed, they can be safely stored for several months. Practically every other continent that came in contact with corn from the 16th century to the 18th century only came to know dry mazorcas, with their intimidatingly hard and practically inedible kernels. And the most common solution was to simply grind them into a coarse flour that was then mixed with water and cooked and seasoned with some fat or oil. Think of foods like polenta, cornbread or African corn koi, which is a dumpling. And of course, corn fufu, which is basically another version of polenta. Why then 
no one ever made tortillas? The answer is that they didn't know how to make masa. And how does masa is produced? Well, all begins with a seeding of dry mazorcas to prepare them for a process called nixtamalization. The kernels are placed in a large pot and covered with fresh water and placed over the fire. And then an alkaline solution of sodium hydroxide is prepared and added. <laughs> Don't worry, this won't turn into a chemistry class. This is just the fancy name of the chemical compounds present in ash and in ground calcium hydroxide, which is limestone. In Spanish, it's called cal, which is dissolved in water. At this point, our pot looks like a witch's cauldron, but the function of this concoction is to produce a reaction speeded by the heat. As it boils, dissolution cooks the very hard skin of the kernels, and this allows the liquid to penetrate all the way to the interior, turning the otherwise plain starch into a wonderful superfood, releasing the amino acids that create protein chains. After this, the pot is removed from the heat and let to cool overnight. So far, corn went from raw to cooked, then to a pre-stage of fermentation, which is stopped the following day when the nixtamal is cold. In English, the word homini, it is used to name these cooked kernels. The homini, or nixtamal, is washed several times with fresh water and is ready to be ground in a metate stone or a mechanic mill. The result is a creamy, fragrant and soft masa or dough, which is ready to be used in an almost infinite number of recipes and cooking methods. If you make tortillas, then you will use a dry and hot method. And the best tool to deliver this is a clay griddle or comal, on which circular flat portions of masa that has been hand-shaped or pressed will be cooked. And these discs will puff up as the steam that gets trapped inside has nowhere to go. Once they are cooked on both sides, they are ready to eat. Masa can also be used to make dumplings or tamales wrapped in banana leaves, corn husks, corn leaves, and leaves of other plants, and steamed. And as I told you before, steaming, well, is neither a fully wet nor a fully dry method, but really a mix of both. Preparing drinks like sweet champurrado, made with chocolate, sugar and cinnamon, of course, with masa, you will need first to dissolve a portion of fresh masa in water, and as it cooks, add the rest of the ingredients. The liquid will thicken, creating a nice, rich beverage. Some traditional vegetable soups have little and round masa dumplings that cook in the broth. In some regions, these dumplings are called chochoyotes or choyoyotes, and the vegetables used are usually tender courgettes, sweet corn, and young pumpkin leaves. But when it comes to fermentation, there is a whole group of traditional drinks that can be served hot or cold. 
some are sweet and some others are savory. So let's take a look at some that contain corn. The fermentation of either fresh sweet corn kernels, mazorca, sprouts, nixtamal or masa can occur in different ways. Here are some interesting examples. To prepare a drink called tezuino or tejuino, the dry and mature kernels are soaked in water and left in a dark space to sprout. After some days, they are ground to make a paste which is dissolved in water and cooked. The resulting liquid is then fermented. After a while, it is strained and sweetened with corn cane juice, honey, agave sap or sugar. In many cases, the pulp or juice of fruits like lime or pineapple is added to give it a refreshing flavor. Desguino is often served either chilled or even better with ice. Pozol is a fascinating drink, not to be confused with the food pozole. This is a refreshing and very nutritious preparation made with only few ingredients, and it is a drink consumed in the states of Chiapas and Tabasco. It is prepared by making hominy or nixtamal, which is ground into a coarse paste mixed with roasted and shelled cacao beans. The resulting masa or coarse paste is divided into portions and shaped into balls that are wrapped in banana leaves and left to ferment. Each of these bowls is enough to prepare a generous individual portion of pozol, which is made by dissolving it in water, mixed and drunk. Some people, however, like to add sugar to it. And farmers can easily carry them into the fields, and whenever they feel hungry or thirsty, they can prepare a refreshing and restoring treat on the spot. At markets, Sellers prepare special versions of pozol, which is made with soft masa instead of coarse masa. They add sugar, cinnamon, cacao, and the mix is strained and served to make it really smooth and very refreshing. An interesting aspect about pozol is that sometimes the masa balls are deliberately left to ferment for much longer periods and then they can be applied as an ointment to treat open wounds, which means that the natural yeasts that are allowed to grow have exactly the same use and effect as penicillin. If you are a yeast nerd, some of the little yeasty friends we can find in Pozol are Geotrichum candidum and cousins of Penicillum, Aspergillus, Oriobacidium, Caleidosporum, Trichoderma, and Fusarum. And of course, there's another very famous fermented drink, and that is pulque, of which I have talked extensively in previous episodes, and particularly in episode 69, which I totally recommend you to check it out. Now, the wonderful magic of this drink is that once the sap of certain giant varieties of agaves that grow in central Mexico is extracted, the high content in sugars and fast absorption of natural yeasts, a fermentation process takes place literally in a matter of minutes. In less than one hour, the chemistry of the sap is completely altered by these factors. 
and it goes from a cloudy amber drink to a white and opaque liquid. While the recreational and ritualistic consumption of pulque is very well documented, there were many other little-known medical uses of pulque in the ancient world that went from drinking it to treat digestive problems to, let's say, less conventional ways of administering it to alleviate constipation and hemorrhoids by applying regular enemas. In fact, there are many pottery pieces depicting such scenes and there are many surviving clay figurines, like little statues of people that are self-administrating pulque enemas with the help of some objects that look like gravy boats with a long neck. Now, the curious thing about these figurines and depictions of people having these enemas is that some actually seem disturbingly happy about it, which has prompted many studies that wonder and explore the recreational consumption of fermented alcoholic drinks via the rear end. And the last example of fermented drinks is a group known in Nahuatl as tepiatl. These are beverages that result from the fermentation of fruits. And there are dozens of them all over Mexico. And really, we can arguably say that fruit fermentation is nature's own 100% natural form of alcohol production. And it is a process that, when controlled by human intervention, can be altered in many ways with different results, such as an increased alcoholic content and the creation of specific flavors by combining different ingredients. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen some posts I've shared of pineapple tepache, which is featured in my ebook Mexican Street Food. Well, today we consider this drink to be Mexican, let me give you a few historical facts that you need to know about it. First of all, pineapple is not native to Mexico, and it was first domesticated in what is today modern-day Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay. And from there, it disseminated to the north of the Amazon and Venezuela. And it wasn't until the Spanish colonization of Latin America that these and many other fruits were exported worldwide. And so that was how in the colonial period pineapple became widely available in Mexico. And its farming in the hot and humid south of the country became very popular. Naturally, savvy cooks tried the same fermentation process used in the preparation of tepiatl, by reserving the peel and adding water, and the novelty addition of a foreign and exotic ingredient that was jaggery or piloncillo, which is a byproduct of sugarcane making. Also, a few more foreign spices were added, such as cinnamon and cloves, and, well, the only native ingredient that was added is allspice which in Mexico we call it pimienta gorda and is native to the region of Tabasco. The Hispanicized name of this drink changed from tepiatl, which simply meant fermented water, to tepache. Tepiatl. Tepache. 
And today, whenever you hear the word tapache, it most likely refers to this pineapple fermented drink. And now let's take a look at the delicious world of cacao. Cacao seeds require very simple but very important techniques to transform these giant seeds into actual food of the gods. Like some other fruits in nature, large and robust cacao pods are incredibly hard to open. In fact, the plant itself has no means of disseminating its seeds. It requires the intervention of animals to open the pods, consume the sweet and juicy pulp that covers the seeds, and disperse them. And, as cacao experts Sophie and Michael Go tell us, it is this very pulp that might have attracted the attention of humans in the first place. But how exactly did they go from pulp consumers to making elegant drinks made of cacao? That remains a bit of a mystery. Chances are, the Coes say, that at some point a string of happy accidents might have occurred, by which humans ate the pulp, toast the discarded seeds into the fire, and the naughty smell that emerged might have awakened their curiosity. And once they tried the bitter and earthy flavor of roasted cacao beans, they knew they were onto something interesting. Most people think that what goes into chocolate making are just a few steps of melting and molding chocolate, pretty much what you see on the Lindt adverts on the television. But actually, the process is far more interesting than that, much longer and quite magical as cacao goes through all three stages of the culinary triangle and then some. It all begins when the ripe cacao pods are harvested and open. The seeds are extracted and placed in beds or containers lined with banana leaves. Once the deposits are full, they are gently mixed so the pulp begins to loosen and then they are covered with more banana leaves and left to ferment for about eight days. In this period, thanks to the fermentation, the temperature inside the containers can reach from 30 to 40 Celsius degrees. And what happens is a chemical dream. You see, even before harvesting, the cacao pods that are still hanging from the trees are carriers of bacteria and yeast that lives in the soil, the air, dust, and also is carried by insects. When the pods are open, the seeds and pulp are extracted, and all of the bacteria and yeasts are passed on to them. Even the banana leaves, knives and machetes that are used carry microorganisms that become part of the fermentation party. What the controlled fermentation does is providing the best conditions for microbial activities to succeed, meaning Yeasts, lactic acid and acetic acid bacteria can jump into action, decomposing the pulp and softening the skin that covers the cacao beans, which occurs in an anaerobic environment, which is a fancy word for saying that it happens without air, allowing enzymes to practically eat away and digest all the fresh and juicy stuff. 
but I told you that this is a controlled process. So all this fermentation is cut short when the containers are emptied and the fermented gooey liquids and pulp are washed away. And the beans are laid to dry in patios, where the sun does its thing by gently desiccating the beans, which at this point are safely protected by their shells. After a few days of turning and drying the beans, they are ready to be roasted, which traditionally is done on a clay griddle or comal, but industrially is done in large roasters. Most of the world's cacao is exported after it has been fermented and dried, so chocolatiers and chocolate producers can roast the beans themselves. But it is also quite common for producers to sell ready-roasted beans. And as you can notice, this is a very similar process to that of coffee. Artists and chocolate makers in Mexico roast and shell beans, and these are straight away crushed in grinders with the addition of sugar. And you can even choose extra flavoring ingredients like cinnamon, almond, and pecan. The hot, dark, and slightly grainy chocolate paste that results can be shaped into discs or bars or balls and left to cool and harden. And this is what most Mexicans traditionally use to prepare milky chocolate, refreshing watery cacao drinks, and many other preparations and dishes. If you have been to the city of Oaxaca or the state of Chiapas or the chocolate museums in Tabasco or the one in Ciudad de Mexico, you might have seen this process. And if you haven't, well, you better add it to your travel bucket list. So what have we learned so far about chocolate production? Now you know that when cacao pods are fresh and ripe, you can eat the pulp or leave it to ferment. From fermentation, the seeds go on to washing and sun drying. They are then roasted in dry heat, shelled and ground. And last, the paste is dissolved into water or milk to make drinks. But this is really just half of the story, because there are many more transformations that will occur in industrial chocolate making. And if you want to know more about this, let me refer you to episode number 59 and episode number 60 in which I talk all things chocolate and I had a very interesting conversation with chocolate historian Alex Hutchinson. Now let's take a look into the many ways in which chiles are processed. Chiles are the fruits of plants that belong to the botanical genome of capsicum, and most are native to the Americas, and there are 31 family members, but only five of them were actually domesticated in Mexico. And from those great five, we got 64 different cultivars that to this day we produce and consume in Mexico. And of course, they are some of our most loved ingredients. And I'm sure it won't surprise you to know that the most popular way to consume them is raw. But let's unpack the many cooking methods of chiles. Quite often, they are harvested before they ripen, which is why most of them are green when you see them at market stalls. A popular way to pre-prepare them is 
charring them on a griddle or straight on a grill. After this, they can be chopped and cooked as part of many dishes or pureed and used in salsas. And if they are big enough after charring, the skin is left to soften and peeled off in order to stuff the chiles. But when they are boiled, the soft pulp can be ground to prepare the base of delicious broths or caldillos. However, there is a particular cooking method that I personally think brings the best culinary qualities of chiles, and certainly it is a Mexican favorite, and that is drying them with hot smoke. The process begins when they are harvested at peak ripeness, meaning that they have completely changed color and they went from green to red. Well, except for a few cultivars like manzano chiles and a few other that turn bright yellow or orange. The large harvest of ripe chiles are laid on metal mesh beds that rest over an open-air smoking chamber connected to the horizontal chimney of an oven, where wood is gently burned, allowing the smoke to travel and dry the chiles by effectively cooking them as the moist evaporates. The oils and flavors concentrate and become infused with the added smell of smoke. This process also eliminates the bacteria and all organisms, yeasts and microbes that could cause chiles to decompose. And this, of course, also takes care of many potentially harmful insects. I think that most of you are familiar with products like smoked hams, cheeses and fish, which are considered a delicacy. But honestly, just because there aren't enough people blowing up the trumpet for Mexican chiles, the world hasn't gone crazy about them. Because this 48-hour smoking process really transforms the already delicious chiles into an extraordinarily complex and rich ingredient that will carry those intense flavors into dishes, salsas, moles, stews, and many recipes. Some culinary uses of smoked chiles begin, or rather continue, with the grinding and even powdering of dry chiles. This powder is essential to prepare traditional drinks like the famous chilate from the Costa Chica of the state of Guerrero. This drink is prepared with roasted and ground cacao, corn masa, cinnamon, piloncillo, water, and chili powder. Once the ingredients are mixed and ground into a smooth paste, they are dissolved in water, sweetened and chilled. Another example of the use of chiles in drinks is one called sendita from the state of Querétaro, which is prepared by sprouting about four to five kilos of mazorca kernels. After a few days, They are ground and turned into a paste or masa that is dissolved in water and boiled in about 20 liters of water for 12 hours. Halfway through this process, a good amount of smoke-dried and ground cascabel and pasilla chiles are added and gently boiled. After this, the drink is strained and allowed to cool overnight. The following day, Four to five liters of well-fermented pulque are added, 
mixed and let ferment another whole day. Finally, two liters of cane brandy or aguardiente de caña are added for good measure. And then sedita is ready to be served. And last, of course, other forms of controlled fermentation are used to preserve chiles. You see, during the colonial period, many culinary methods were introduced, and one that remains to be very popular to this day is pickling. But far from making astringent and pungent pickles, here in Mexico we prefer using a heavy amount of herbs and spices to infuse our chiles, vegetables, eggs, and even meats. In fact, one of Mexico's most loved Chile preserves are jalapeño pickles, or jalapeños en escabeche, and sweet pickled chipotles, which is a personal favorite of mine. And in case you are interested, these two recipes are featured in my ebook Mexican Market Food. Also, of course, I previously made a whole episode dedicated to chiles. And if you want to hear more about their history and uses, well, you better head to the archive of the podcast and look for episode number 51. At this point, I think you can realize how, from a technical point of view, there are many possibilities between raw, cooked and fermented. And there is a wide variety of methods and combinations of them that result in complex foods that at first sight might seem fairly familiar and all too simple, like a bar of chocolate or, like I said, a humble corn tortilla. And also you see why many food scholars continue pushing forward recognition of cooking methods that not only involve fire and that indeed absolutely require a calculated and deliberate human intervention. It is the creation of meanings, attitudes and behaviors that we have come up with around food what really signals our very distinctive human nature. On this second part of the episode, I want to introduce you to a contemporary line of research that has been developed in Mexico by Mesoamericanists, that is, scholars who study indigenous cultures, both past and present. And there's one area in particular that has become increasingly popular that explores how meanings, rituals and practices were developed in which foods play a key role. This field is truly interesting because it not only considers the symbolic use of cooking methods, it also explores the sensory experience of foods, that is aromas, flavors, textures, colors, and even the addition of sound, which, you know, upon careful consideration, it is perfectly natural that indigenous cultures had come to develop such sophisticated appreciation of food. After all, it will be just too arrogant to think that only with the arrival of 18th and 19th century French gastronomes and chefs, we became aware for the first time of these sensory factors. Because in reality, they have been part of our cultural lives for thousands of years. 
So what I want to do is to present some comparisons between pre-Columbian and present-day traditions linked to the preparation and uses of ritualistic foods and, in doing so, highlighting some of the ways in which these practices have managed to survive and adapt to the many changes that the indigenous societies have gone through over the centuries. A good starting point is to know that when it came to fixed celebrations in ancient calendars, nearly all of them were tied into agricultural cycles. And based on their period and activities, certain deities will be linked to specific ceremonies, in which, invariably, there were two types of food, one for the gods and the deities, and one for the people who would share it after or during the rituals. In fact, food was never really just a simple element. It was absolutely central to the success of such rituals. A good way to explain this is to view the use of certain foods the same way they are signified in a Christian rite, like a mass or service, in which the peak moment is the consecration of the representations of Christ's blood and body in the metaphor of wine and bread and their consumption, which is effectively theophagy, or the eating of a god. For many indigenous cultures, ritualistic food had exactly the same purpose, to offer a symbolic communion with either a specific deity, and sometimes the food was made in a specific shape. Also, certain foods could be symbolically shared with the souls of the departed and fed to the earth or the cosmos itself. In fact, the physical aspect of ritualistic foods was very important, as different shapes had specific meanings. This, of course, is not exclusive to Mexican cultures, because I'm sure you've heard about the meaning of the shape of pretzels, which, according to food historians, represents arms that are crossed in a praying disposition. Well, It turns out that some ancient ritualistic foods had all sorts of forms, such as hands, feet, faces, shields, dolls, flowers, and butterflies. And many of these were made out of corn masa, meaning they were little tortillas with all sorts of amazing forms. But not only shapes were important, also colors played a big role. For example, In the Florentine Codex, we find descriptions of foods offered to Maquilosochitl, the god of games and leisure activities, in the form of little round cakes called tzoali, that were red, black and blue. In fact, tzoali is a term used to describe many forms of ritualistic foods made with a paste of roasted and ground amaranth seeds with cooked agave syrup, raw honey and other substances, such as blood. Modern-day ethnographers have noted that in many indigenous rituals, there's at least nine different forms of preparing corn foods for ceremonial purposes. Some of these methods include popcorn, which also, in fact, is one of the oldest forms of corn consumption. 
Another method is simply boiling the dry kernels of mazorcas. We also have making hominy or nixtamal, roasting corn and steaming masa, which is the preferred technique to make tamales. Added to this, the preparation of ritualistic foods had to be accompanied then and now by prayers, the use of special tools, specific culinary sequences, and even the abstinence of sexual encounters, which if you think of it is not miles away from the way other cultures have done preparations or blessings of foods. Think of the berkahot or types of food blessings that rabbi perform to prepare foods for its consumption. Or the Polish Shvetsonka, when special Easter baskets are blessed on Holy Saturday. A rather endearing practice I found is one that occurs during the harvest season in the Tlapaneco communities in the state of Guerrero. Both beans and corn but not any corn, cacao simple corn, which is the one we use to make pozole, are prepared together, as according to their tradition, since they were a gift of the gods, together they grow and together they have to be celebrated. And the dish that brings them together, it's called etzali. In fact, this dish has a well-documented history and its preparation and symbolism as a ritualistic food goes back to pre-Columbian times and was a feast during the agricultural celebrations in the month of Etzalcoalistli. One aspect that is important to consider is the fact that the creation of a characteristic set of flavors and combinations of them related to the use, function and meaning of foods is not accidental, but the elaborate product of a cultural process. And for many cultures in pre-Columbian times, the association with certain flavors had a special meaning. In fact, the use of the words to describe flavors were also used as linguistic metaphors of particular circumstances. The work of Mesoamericanist Elena Mazzetto has unveiled many examples of this. For instance, in the rites associated with the cult of the dead, the use of aromatic flowers at altars, along with the aroma of sweet foods, was part of the belief that these offers had the ability of facilitating the communication and connection between the world of the living and the world of the dead. For the Mexica or Aztec people, the prayers and offers to Texcatlipoca, the Lord of Darkness, were always described as sweet and soft, which I guess is more about their views, which, you know, comes from a society that was very invested in imperial expansion and warfare. No, surprisingly, they even had war poems that described being killed with an obsidian dagger as sweet and beautiful. According to the Florentine Codex, Knights were fed special rations during battle, made with corn masa, amaranth and other seeds, and even ground cacao that was mixed with sweet agave sap, corn cane syrup and honey, and very often at the altars for fallen warriors 
sweet foods were present. But these interpretations of flavors were not exclusive to the Mexica world, because thanks to Mayan codices, we know that their underworld, or Xibalba, was described as a place where all foods are abundant, intensely sweet, fragrant and palatable. Which, if you think of it, all of these descriptions of foods and flavors in the afterlife are not too dissimilar from the way other cultures around the world have created their own myths about the idealized afterlife, often described as a paradise with abundant and delicious food. Nowadays, there are many surviving practices for preparing ritualistic foods that are placed at altars or that are part of ceremonies. For instance, among the several Totonaco communities of Puebla, certain ritualistic tamales, called pleig, are prepared as part of agricultural and religious rituals and can only contain the meat of pork, hens or roosters. And there has to be an exact number of such tamales of different meats, as some numbers are associated with masculinity and femininity. Other tamales, like the giant sacawil, can have more than one meter in length, and they are prepared for festive communal events, such as weddings and religious celebrations. And last, these Totonaco communities also prepare tancolu tamales, which are made with the whole body of a butchered rooster, carefully covered in masa and steamed. Other communities of the state of Veracruz that are part of the Huasteca region, where many people speak Nahuatl, have many types of festive and ritualistic tamales prepared with beans, fish, pumpkin, sweet corn, peanuts and the meat of different animals. And interestingly, some of the names of these tamales indicate their use and purpose. If they are offered to a deity or a saint, they are called teotamali. But if they are part of a gift, the name is chichiquili tamales. Tamales for the deities of the underworld are called tlazol tamali and ejecatamali. And speaking of special foods for deities, in the community of Huehuetlan in Puebla, several statues of baby Jesus are celebrated on April 30, which in Mexico is known as Dia del Niño, or Children's Day. Special religious services are held, which are followed by communal feasts that include sweet atole drinks, sweet and savory tamales, cakes, sorbets, pastries, sweets and fruits, which are all treats that children enjoy. Earlier, I told you about certain tamales and cakes prepared with amaranth called tzoali. Well, it so happens that this tradition didn't disappear after the conquest. And to this day, many communities in the southeastern Pacific coast, tzoalis are made in honor of the deities and guardians of the rain. These foods are commonly called masa angels and even have little cute faces, sometimes made with two black beans to mark the eyes and a corn kernel to represent the mouth. The dough is made of toasted and ground amaranth mixed with piloncillo, 
to sweeten the deity's temper and convince them to grant abundant rains and good weather. And these little Tsoali angels are placed at the milpa allotments and left as an offer. But what about specific flavors, like those that are part of the culinary identity of Mexico, like chiles? What role did they play in our culture? Well, to close this episode, let's take a look at some cultural and culinary ritualistic meanings and uses of chiles. Let me tell you first two things that will blow your mind. First is that, as I briefly mentioned earlier, they are a fruit, not a vegetable. And not just any fruit. They are, in fact, berries. And so important was the role of chiles in the gastronomy and culture of ancient tribes that, at least in the case of the Mexica world, they had a specific goddess called Tlatlauqui Siwatl, which roughly translates as the red woman or the red lady, to whom strong salsas, fiery dishes and other piquant festive recipes were prepared and offered. And again, we find that the preparation of these dishes required that the cook and those who helped had to fast and avoid eating certain foods and ingredients. Ironically, chiles were some of those forbidden ingredients. Now, the word to describe the burning sensation in the lips and mouth caused by the capsaicin contained in the veins, flesh and seeds was used as an expression and like a metaphor that described pain, affliction and being worried. The Nahuatl word to define something as picante is cococ, which literally means piquant. And kukuk was also used as a way to express and describe an offense, also being sick or having one's feelings hurt. Oh, poor chiles. In previous episodes, I have made mentions about the use of chiles to discipline unruly children by holding them over burning chiles. But here's another punishment that was robbing raw chiles on the eyes of children. Now, I'm not going to tell you how to parent your kids, but, you know, I'm just saying, I'm sure these poor souls really learned their lesson. For some indigenous cultures, the change in color of chiles as they grow and ripen had different meanings. For example, during harvest and planting seasons, many rituals take place to ensure an abundance of rain and healthy crops. These practices often involve offers of green chiles and arranging floral and produce bouquets and decorations for saints, archangels, churches and also indigenous deities. And on the other hand, the use of ripe red chiles, normally in dry form, are part of apotropaic or protection rituals. And the burning of chiles and copal incense is often a common combination to cast away bad spirits, counterbalance coldness and evil. Some practices to protect family members from cold and bad winds after returning from a funeral include the cleanse with a smoke 
of a combination of chiles, sugar, and coffee. And last, part of the significance and meanings of chiles as the base of important dishes like moles that are central to celebrations and rituals is to provide warmth, happiness, and even euphoria that when shared really brings people together. Now, here are some final thoughts about today's episode. The meaning and interpretations of foods, preparations, combinations, technology and methods is incredibly vast and complex. And not only that, all of those elements also serve the purpose to create particular culinary codes that together are part of the cultural identity of a community and even a whole culture. As we have seen today, the use of fire to change ingredients is not the only means to create culturally produced food. And indeed, the deliberate and purposeful use of raw, cooked and fermented methods combined with forms of processing and the careful consideration of flavors, aromas, colors, textures and shapes create sophisticated and rich forms of creative culinary expression. The point I try to make today is to bring the attention to different ways of analyzing food from different perspectives that help us see the different and unique traditions from Mexico, both past and present, and contribute to broaden our possibilities of exploration, understanding, and discovery of Mexico's culinary heritage. Thank you for listening and I uh, really hope you have enjoyed this episode that was researched, presented and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. For those who are interested in reading more about the topics that I've talked about today, I do have a list with the references that help me document this episode, which is available on my website and you can access this post via a link I have left on the description of the episode. Some of the authors that I've read and are included in this list are Arturo Gomez Martinez, Elena Mazzetto, and Daniel Dove. If you would like to continue listening more about food, taste, and the way we perceive it, then I totally recommend you check out episode number seven of my other podcast, Hungry Books, in which I talk about a book called Making Sense of Taste, Food, and Philosophy by philosopher <laughs> Caroline Crossmeyer. The link to this and all the other past episodes I mentioned today will be on the notes as well. Remember that these and my other podcasts are only but part of my work, which includes ebooks, a food tour in the city of Puebla, and online lectures for which I often get special requests. So if you are interested in knowing more about any of those things, Uh, look for my contact details on your podcast app. Send me a message on Instagram or Twitter. You can find the show as at Chipotle Podcast there. And of course, you can drop me a line to hello at pasachipotle.com. And that's it for me, my friends. Stay curious and take care. Until the next time. <music>